Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Pocket Theology. I am here with my buddy, Martin. Martin, say hi. You can't tell, but I'm tipping my hat to you. That's great. We should start doing a video, except for that part where we both have voices for radio and faces for radio. So we're not we're not we're not going to do video anytime soon. Sorry, guys. Uh, Today, we wanted to talk a little bit about different views of the creation narrative. So here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to tell you what to believe. We're not going to tell you what we believe. We're going to do a quick summary of Genesis 1 through 3. And then we're going to say, here's a couple really common positions. There are Christian theologians that hold all of these positions that we respect, that we listen to and learn from, whether we've had them as professors or whether we just know them from a distance through their public work, whatever. We might mention a few of them as we go along. We just want to make you aware in this episode that there are many different Orthodox Christian views of the creation narrative of Genesis 1 through 3. And you can take any one of these views and still be a follower of Jesus and still spend an eternity with our God and Savior. So this becomes a battleground for a lot of Christians. We just want to make it less angry, I guess, a little bit more open and just give you the information and then just like hands off and walk away. Right. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to start off with Martin doing his OT nerd thing and telling us a quick summary of what happens in Genesis 1 through 3 without too much interpretation. So, Martin, if you're ready, go for it. Of course, it starts with the beginning. Super vague question, or super vague statement. The word is Bereshit, which doesn't mean, like, however many years ago. It's basically like the equivalent of saying, well, back in my day, and never telling anyone when my day is. Right. So I can say back in my day and you guys wouldn't realize it's two years ago. It starts off with this really vague statement about what we're going to talk about in the beginning. And then it goes into what happened. So it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes in a little bit to explaining how he did so. And then it talks about how God spoke and there was light and separated sky and the water below And then he creates the land to separate the seas. So basically what happens is he spends the first three days creating territories. So he creates the sky, he creates the seas, he creates the land. And then on days four, five, and six, he fills each one of those respectively. So he fills the sky with the birds, and then he fills the seas with the fish and the dinosaur stuff, right? And then he fills the land with, like, five different words for animals, basically. And then, at the end of day six, we get a bonus creation, is the way I always explain it. God creates humans. He creates Adam, which literally translates humankind. We usually just say his name is Adam. Then we get into chapter two a little bit. So, after they created everything, uh, God takes the day off. He rests. And then we get into a little bit of what's going on. And so God creates humans, right? And then God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for mankind to be alone. And so God creates woman. Basically, God says mankind is not good to be alone. uh, And he creates woman. And he names it Eve, right? And then we see that they 
go around. They're naming all the animals. They're doing all the fun stuff that you would do if you were the only people on the earth. And God says, go be fruitful and multiply. Cool. And then we get to chapter three. Chapter three is where conflict is introduced. So any good story has conflict, right? Uh, when you watch Star Wars, there's always the Sith. When you watch The Lord of the Rings, there's always the orcs, right? Conflict doesn't just happen in a movie. It's, it's created. And so in chapter three, we get introduced to conflict. And basically what happens is God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any of the fruit in the garden except for this specific tree. This tree is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So like any good, responsible human being would do at that time, they didn't eat from it for a while. And then a serpent shows up and says to Eve, hey, you, you ever think about eating from that tree that God said not to eat from? And Eve goes, no, of course not. We were, we were told not to eat from that. And then the serpent says, but did you really get told that you wouldn't, couldn't eat from it? And she says, of course we were. God said surely we would die, which when you think about it, death means nothing to them. They're the first humans. Nobody has died yet. Nothing has died yet. As far as we know, they don't eat meat. And so death is this weird concept to them that they don't may not fully understand. Uh, but Eve says, no, God said surely we would die. And the serpent goes, surely you won't die? That's ridiculous. And so Eve gets convinced to eat said fruit. Uh, she goes and she, as the scripture says, saw that it was pleasurable to the eye. It looked nice. And she ate it. And then her eyes were opened. And she understood good and evil. And she handed that fruit to Adam and said, Yo, dude, check this out. And then he ate from it. And they saw that they were naked. And they hid. And then God comes around and goes, well, where are you guys at? And Adam speaks up and says, we were ashamed because we were naked. And God goes, well, who told you you were naked? You're not supposed to know that. And Adam goes, oh, um, that, that fruit, I ate that. And now, now I know right and wrong. And he goes, well, why, why did you eat the fruit? And Adam says, it's her fault and points to Eve. And Eve says, it's the snake's fault and points to the snake. And then they all get cursed. So, women, if you, if you ever birth a child and you're in pain, just remember it's Eve's fault. It's part of the curse that was given to her. Man, if you ever, you know, you ever get tired of planting your own food, I guess if that's something you do. I don't plant my own food. Uh, I don't grow anything. I have the least green thumb you will ever find. I had four plants in my last apartment and killed all four in like three months. But uh, if you start to wonder why you have to work to eat, that's that's because of Adam. And if you ever wonder why snakes don't have legs, that's because of the serpent, I guess. Because he got told to crawl on his belly. So that's pretty much what happens in chapter 3. They get kicked out after that, and they get basically sentenced to life under those conditions. The only The only thing that I wanted to add is right after God kicks them out, he says to presumably angels or the rest of the Trinity, mankind has become like us and we must make sure that they do not eat from the tree of 
everlasting life. Yeah, that's where we're at in Genesis uh, 1 through 3. That is, with minimal interpretation, <laughs> what's presented. God makes the world in six days. He rests on the seventh. There's this weird thing in a garden that, you know, there's just two people here and this snake. Tons of stuff we glossed over. There's stuff with ancient cosmology. And what's a snake? What's a seraph? What's it doing there? Why can it talk? There's all sorts of cool stuff going on. But that's the gist of it. And people will look at this. And the primary argument when modern people look back on Genesis 1 through 3 is, how old is the earth? And did God really make it in six days? Because that sounds kind of crazy. And I think that's really sad. Because it's not really what the point of the story is. The point of the story is, who are humans? Who is God? What is our relationship with God like? Why are things not perfect? That's the, the point of the story. How did we get ourselves in this mess? But since it's something that people worry about, we wanted to talk about how old is the earth? Was it really made in six days? We're just going to present you with the different views. And then we're just going to let you go do your own research and digging and praying and interpreting and We'll just say that no matter what view you take, you can still be a Bible-believing, saved Christian who loves Jesus, and we expect to see you in eternity. The first most common view you'll see, at least in the U.S. amongst evangelicals, is what I'm going to call the traditional view, which may be a little bit loaded, but oh well. I'm going to call it the traditional view, which is the earth is relatively young. Often the number that gets thrown around is 6,000 years. It's not really a popular number anymore, but that's the number that gets tossed around. 6,000, maybe 10,000 years old, and that it was made in six literal days. So basically, you read Genesis, and Genesis 1, and it tells you exactly like how the earth was made, what order things were made in. And that's, I mean, <laughs> that's just of, of the view. There's not a whole lot of interpretation that needs to go on. Um, there's some weirdness, like the sun and stars are made after light is made. And like, that's kind of strange. And there's different apologists that take this view that'll explain, oh, well, the light isn't coming from the sun until the sun is created. So the light is coming from God himself or from somewhere else. So the concept of light is made, but there isn't a light producing object or whatever. Doesn't matter. Traditional view, the earth is made in six days. Now, as for that 6,000 or 10,000 year old thing. As you go forward throughout the Torah, you'll get these lineages. One of them is like in Genesis 10, and it's often called the Table of Nations, where you get from Noah onwards this list of descendants. And you get ones before then that bring you from Adam to Noah, and you can look even at uh, lineages later in the Bible, these stories of, you know, this person begot this person, begot this person, begot that person. And someone looked at these numbers and said, okay, so when the table of nations says so-and-so is Shem's son, it literally means that is his child. Like that is his son. Uh, and therefore the earth comes out, you know, with the ages we know and the ages we can guess at the earth comes out to be somewhere around 6,000 years old. And some people kind of said, oh, well, you know, there's some issues with that and re readjusted the number to say 10,000. So we'll just say six to 10,000 years old. That's tr tr the traditional Christian view. The problem with this is, and this is one of the few points where I'll kind of put my foot down and say, like, this is bad Bible interpretation. When you're reading a Hebrew family tree, whether it's actually written in Hebrew or written in Greek, like the ones in Matthew and in Luke, son of whoever, if it says this person was the son of, or this person begat that person, 
it doesn't literally mean this person is your child. It means this person is your descendant. So if we're taking like this kind of like Hebrew perspective, you can say I am the son of Rick Frederick, my father. I am. I am. I'm literally his son. But you can also say I am the son of Karen Frederick, who is my grandmother. Now, I'm not actually your son. I'm her grandson is how we would say it in English. But I'm her descendant. Therefore, I am her, quote, son. So the 6,000, 10,000 year old thing, it's based on a horrible misinterpretation of how these family trees work. Um, we don't know how many generations are missing. We don't know how old every individual is. It's just not, it's not good interpretation to read those family trees that way. So we'll put my foot down there and say that is bad Bible interpretation. But besides that, and the traditional view is held by tons of Christians, and there are reasons to hold to that point of view, and there are reasons to argue against it. One thing that I think is very much in favor of this view is, I don't know if there's an official title for it, but I'll call it the appearance of age, which is, it was first put to me this way. When you imagine God creating Adam and Eve, let's just assume that like Adam and Eve made out of the ground, just like described in Genesis. How old, Martin, I'll ask you, since you're here, how old do they look at the moment they're created? You know, in my imagination, when I think about it, I think of 20 to 30-year-old Adam and Eve. They're fully developed. Yep. They're young adults. They're ready to start living, yep. basically. Yeah, and I would think the exact same thing. I would imagine them being in their 20s, 30s, somewhere in there, right? And that makes sense. I mean, the first one of the first commandments given to them, the first commandment, is uh, fill the earth and subdue, or be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. If you're going to be fruitful, multiply, which is two ways of saying have babies, you need to be old enough to have babies. <laughs> and if they are tending the garden, which seems to be what they're up to, they need to be old enough to do the work involved with tending the garden. So yeah, 20 or 30. So if God created the earth in six literal days, couldn't he have created an earth that has the appearance, the form, the rock formations and fossils of a billion upon billion year old earth, but it actually be only however many thousand years old? Yeah, that is entirely a God would be capable of doing that. I don't know why he would do that, but there's a lot of things that God does that confuses me. So I don't necessarily have a problem with that. So if I was going to if I was going to take this position and again I won't tell you which one I actually hold to but if I was going to take this position that would be my argument is God can make an earth that makes that looks billions of years old but it's not there's one slight variation of this view called the age day theory that I'll mention really briefly and it basically takes the view that a day in Genesis is a metaphorical statement a metaphorical term that means thousands upon thousands or millions upon millions or billions upon billions of years. So people will point to verses like Psalm 90 verse four that says a thousand years in your sight is like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Second uh, Peter three, eight Peter quotes that verse paraphrases that verse as well. And the idea is to God, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is a, again, another metaphor, a thousand simply meaning a large amount. So a day is nothing to God. And when he says, you know, the earth was made in six days, the earth might have really been made in billions of years, but he expresses, somewhat poetically expresses the way he created the earth to these primitive humans that would have had no concept of billions upon billions of years when he's giving them the Torah in the northern Sinai desert after they've left Egypt, 
right? The story given in the Exodus or the book of Exodus. So that's again, a possibility. Um, I've heard opponents of this state that there's no other examples in Hebrew of the term day being used in such a way, but I simply don't have the ability with Hebrew to argue one way or another. I'm just going to give you the possibility that there are many devout Christians that will say a day in Genesis is actually a stand-in for billions of years. It's poetic. So the earth was actually made the way described in Genesis, more or less, maybe with some slight rearrangement of the order of events for poetic reasons, but that day symbolically means billions of years. But we do have one more theory we want to introduce you guys to that will probably sound really scandalous if you've never heard it before. Uh, there are proponents of this, like I believe Tim Mackey, uh, William Lane Craig is a proponent of this. N.T. Wright is a proponent of a version of this theory. So there are some really well-regarded, even in evangelical circles, theologians that hold to this view, but it is strange and it's going to feel really scandalous to some of you guys. And Martin has graciously volunteered to introduce it to us. So Martin, tell us about the mytho-history view. Essentially, what this view states is that this is not a historical event. This is a myth. And there's a few forms of it. One of them, uh, one of them being that it's supposed to be a poem, which I, I can tell you is not a great way to read this and part of that is because of the way it's written in hebrew so when you read a psalm versus when you read a narrative they're actually written differently and part of it is their uh, sentence structure and so a psalm or a poem will have the verb first and then we'll have the subject or the direct the subject and the direct object but when you read a story it's going to have the subject, the verb, then the direct object. And so it, the sentence structure is completely different for poetry versus uh, narrative. And so this actually reads like a narrative. And part of that is it uses what's called a vav consecutive, which basically when you would translate it into English, it would look like and then. So when you tell a story in Hebrew, it's a lot of and then. It's like when a four-year-old tells you a story. They'll say, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Just to like simplify that for everyone, like Martin's doing a good job of explaining the grammar really clearly, but just in case you're still as like, ah, ancient languages. The point is, Genesis is not written the way that you write poems in Hebrew. That is the gist of it. That Genesis 1 through 3 is not written how the Psalms are written, so there's a questionable amount of evidence to suggest that it's a poem. Yes. So it is clearly a narrative when you look at the way that it's written. Um, but you also have to ask yourself, there's a lot of stories that are written that aren't historical. And Hebrew doesn't differentiate those in how they write them. So it could be either or. It could be a literal story that we can read as a literal six-day translation or even an age day or we can read it as a myth. And here's why this theory is so much more, I don't know what the word is. This is why this- It's this really widely is... accepted amongst like academics, like Christian academics. And we're not talking about like people who study the Bible who don't love Jesus. We're talking about people who deeply love Jesus, 
that are very well educated that have a ton of knowledge about how to read ancient stories and interpret the Bible. It is super popular in those circles. Part of why this is so popular is because parts of this this narrative and the story of Noah all the way up to chapter 11 in Genesis actually are fairly similar to that of other cultures or other religions. And I'm not saying that they stole this at all. I'm saying that what this story does in this this view is it sets up essentially the prologue for the rest of your Bible. It tells you the setting of what's going on. It tells you why there's sin in the world. It tells you why uh, why people suck, honestly. Uh, it tells you why the world is tainted. It tells you why uh, people speak different languages. It tells you why the world is separated like it is. It tells you why people don't agree with each other, right? And so these stories up until here explain a large part of the way that you're supposed to read your Bible after this. It explains all of these things, and it's really forming a worldview. And it, because of that, it's, it doesn't matter when the world was created. And Jason and I will tell you this multiple times, uh, but this story, this narrative, is not intending to answer that question. And if you read it looking for that, you're not going to find an answer, or at least not one that's trustworthy. And so um, when you look at how what this story is trying to answer, right, it's trying to answer a, a few very important things. First of all, why are we here? We find out that it's because we are created in the image of God. We're meant to reflect and worship him, right? Uh, it answers why people suck, again, because sin entered the world, and sin is in the hearts of all people, right? Or it's in the nature of all people. And then it explains what happens when sin gets out of hand, right? And we see, well, Cain and Abel, someone gets murdered. Then we see the flood. There's actually flood narratives in a tremendous amount of cultures surrounding Israel, which is what I refer to as the ancient Near East. That's what it's usually called. Uh, there's flood narratives in a tremendous amount of cultures around that because for some reason they all thought the world flooded for something. And there's eight-ish people that leave whatever contraption saved them and they're supposed to repopulate the earth. That's a, that's a common thread in different cultures. And then the Tower of Babel answers the really big question, why does my neighbor speak a funny way? Well, it's because they created a tower and God said they're getting too close, so now they got to speak different languages so they can't communicate and reach me. It doesn't have to be a literal story. None of these have to be a historical event, but they form what the way that you read the Bible the rest of the way. It forms the way that you see the world after this. And so, um, part of part of the proof of this, Jason mentioned earlier, uh, the sun shows up after light does. The sun is the main source of light when we look at the world. The sun illuminates everything around it, but somehow there's light and there's no sun. And Jason explained a little bit, you know, that could be God's glory. When you get into, I think it's Exodus, 
when Moses goes up to the mountain, they see he comes down and his face is like shining because he saw God pass by and the glory of God made his face light up. Same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Yeah. And frequently God's glory is described as this like ineffable light, even in Revelation, right? There's no need for the sun because of the presence of the Lord in, in the New Jerusalem. So that's entirely possible, but it's also very strange, especially when you have the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun, the morning and the evening, but there's no sun <laughs> until the fourth day. Like that's very, very strange. So uh, there's also, you know, there's sub theories around these. Uh, one of these is around Christian evolution. Were Adam and Eve humans like we would understand them? Or were they some kind of humanoid? They stood on two legs? Or did they walk around like bears? Who knows? Uh, that's not, again, not a question that Genesis is trying to answer in this. Uh, where do their, their kids and their wives come from? Well, there's there's a very crude way to answer that. And there's there's a more tactful way. You know, we could say, oh, God created more people. Or we could say Adam and Eve had daughters as well, and they had to populate the earth. So they did what they had to do with their sisters. You know, like there's there's explanations that come around these things, but it's a more tricky interpretation. It's more difficult to really work around. It requires a lot more uh, cultural understanding. It requires a lot more a lot more understanding of what's what's being asked in this story versus what we just look at. Jason, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, two things real quick. One is biblical evolution and then the idea of Adam and Eve being hominids, being non-human, human-like creatures. So things like it's so like Neanderthals and then like modern humans are both homo sapiens. They're just different subspecies. Um, but there's other human-like creatures, um, homo erectus, right? Which every middle school boy gets to laugh about their scientific name. That is a hominid. It's not a human, but it's it's in the same genus. I also like um, that because I'm a youth minister. Yeah. So that's why he gets along with the kids. There's a version of Genesis's mytho-history. I think N.T. Wright holds this. I think Joshua Swamidas might, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Uh, he wrote the Genealogical Adam and Eve, fairly recent book, worth reading. Um, but the idea would be that Adam and Eve were something like a homo erectus. They weren't homo sapiens. They were a pre-human hominid. And there were many other hominids, but they were the first ones that crossed whatever threshold by God's decree crossed whatever threshold determines the difference between an animal and a human. So the human like creatures around them were not humans in God's sight, but they were, they were the first couple that was. And then when they reproduced, they passed on this trait of humanness to their offspring and their offspring to their offspring and so on and so forth. And Joshua Swamidas is actually uh, a researcher at WashU in St. Louis. He's a professor there, or at least he was at the time that he published that book. 
I'm not sure if he still is or not. And he ran the math basically on how many generations would it take for like 95% of the human population to have inherited a trait from Adam and Eve. And it would have taken like seven or eight generations. So it wouldn't have taken that long. That's a separate theory or more like a, a sub theory within the idea of biblical evolution, which fits with age day theory or mytho history where basically you're saying evolution happened, but God decreed it. So God guided the process and it's possible that Genesis was in, was writing, you know, whoever Moses or whoever was writing this was digging out details from these different stories and was intentionally playing with them to make a point about this is how Yahweh is different than like the Babylonian gods. It's also possible. This is what a, what a six day creationist would say that there is a collective human memory, a cultural memory where every culture remembers some of these events like the flood that actually happened. So they'd say, well, the flood was a worldwide flood. That's a whole different debate. Was the flood regional or worldwide is a whole different thing, but Let's say they take the traditional view. It's a worldwide flood and everyone's descended not only from Adam and Eve, but everyone is descended from Noah as well. So every culture on earth has this faint recollection of like, there was this flood once and we're all descended from this guy that got off this big box. It's not even really a boat. The word for ark is box. And the word in Greek, kibaton is also box. So it's a giant waterproof box and they get off of it and they're like, wow, we should remember this and tell our kids about it. And they all do, but in a lot of cultures, that story gets corrupted. So you end up with like different flood stories in different cultures, but they're all kind of remembering this thing that actually did happen. Like the Bible describes it. So yeah, those would be my, just a little bit more nuance in the biblical evolution thing. And then acknowledging there is a counter to like, why would all these other creation myths look like the Bible's? Well, maybe it's not because the Bible is trying to reference them, but maybe it's because they're remembering the same thing the biblical authors remember. They're just doing it less accurately. It's entirely possible either way. And again, like we said to start this show, this episode, you can take any of these stances and still be a Christian. And this is the one thing that really, really gets after me in this whole debate is when people, and just to be blatantly honest, it's normally people that take a traditional view. They'll say, if you don't believe in a young earth and a literal six day creation, you're not a Christian and you're not saved and you're going to hell. And it's like chapter and verse, man, point to me where, where in scripture does it say that on a secondary issue that has little to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the core of our faith. If I disagree with you that I'm going to hell, like where in the Bible does it say that? And the answer is it doesn't. If I'm going to throw a movement under the bus, like the young restless reformed movement, which was, you know, like Mark Driscoll and John MacArthur and like that kind of uh, James McDonald, like these sorts of guys, many of whom have fallen from grace. Now, <laughs> these sorts of guys really push this idea of like, we have a robust theology that has an opinion on every possible stance. And if you don't agree with it, not only are you not allowed in our church and not only are you not allowed on our leadership, but you're not even a Christian. And that's just not, not a good way to do church. So most traditions throughout the history of Christianity have a more tolerant view <laughs> of these secondary issues. You'll see debate within, within Catholicism even on how to do, do these different parts of theology, how to handle Genesis or how to handle whatever passage. Uh, it's just something that we don't do particularly well in the West. We get really dogmatic, just like we do in our politics, and we scream at each other over issues that are not that important. 
thank you guys so much for joining us today. We hope that this was helpful. I hope that you heard some interpretation of Genesis that you haven't heard before or haven't considered before, or at the very least that you feel reassured that even if you aren't settled on how to take those first few chapters, that you feel confident that the blood of Jesus still covers you, that the church still has a place for you, that you can still do wonderful and amazing things for God's kingdom, and that this issue is not that important. It's not an issue of fellowship. It's not a core issue of doctrine. It's just something that we pursue because everything in the Bible is worth pursuing. And even if we end up getting it wrong, the pursuit of Jesus deeply matters. So uh, we appreciate you guys. We're praying for you guys. Thanks for spending time with us. And we hope to see you back here next week.